name is Andrew Evans. I am a deacon and on the pastoral staff here at Church of the Resurrection. It's great to be here with all of you. Turn with me in your Bibles to that passage in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. It's on page 690 in the Gray Pew Bibles. We are continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, looking at how Christ calls us to live in his kingdom, how we're being trained for righteousness that glorifies him. And today, I don't know if your eyebrows raised at all while we were reading that gospel lesson, but we are talking about sex, lust, marriage, and divorce. So let's pray together, shall we? <laughs> Father, I praise you for the hope of the gospel. Would we this morning see not only the evil of our sin, but the goodness of what you call us to, and the goodness and the glory of the gospel. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Why are Christians so obsessed with sex? Have you heard that question before? Maybe you've asked that question before. I love the giggles. Back when I was in high school, I went to a public high school, mind you, and every Valentine's Day we had a True Love Waits rally. And this rally was rarely a, any sort of success. Often it was a train wreck. <laughs> but we rarely had rallies like this. It was basically like True love weights in football, right? So what did the administration value? What were their priorities? What were they really concerned about? Not domestic abuse, not cheating on tests, not dire poverty in rural South Carolina. <laughs> they were concerned about whether the students were having sex with each other. That was their big concern. Um, this is purity culture. That's the name. A lot of you have heard that name before, right? This is purity culture, and it can push people in a couple different directions at least, if you've experienced all of these all at the same time. On the one hand, it can make you just really scared about sex, right? Any whiff of anything sexual makes you anxious and afraid and scared and ashamed. And maybe on the other side, it, this purity culture makes you just want to reject it. And in the best possible version of this is something like, look, Jesus came to forgive me for my sins, right? And, and, and so I'm not no longer enslaved and shackled to, the, to these commands of the law, but I'm, I'm free in Christ. And so that, that means that my life should be characterized by freedom, even, even sexual freedom. Maybe you've experienced or thought both of those. But our reading today, our gospel reading, shows us that Christians are right to care about sex. Because Jesus cares about sex. Jesus cares about marriage. It wasn't the only thing that he cared about. Far from it. Absolutely. But he did care about it. And so we need to pay attention. And we need to care about it too. That doesn't change the fact, though, that especially for us in this time... This topic, this constellation of topics is super loaded for us, isn't it? 
so many of us have painful histories around the topics of, of lust and sex and marriage. Maybe you've struggled with sin mightily for years in this area. Maybe you've had others sin against you in this area, even traumatically. Likely everyone in this room has been touched by divorce. Some of you might not have much in the way of convictions around sex or marriage. But some of you have convictions that are in fact so strong that you have chosen to live your life in such a way that it is not only radically countercultural, but it's really difficult and painful at times. There is so much pain and shame and fear and anxiety around this set of issues, isn't there? We feel it. Your giggling showed that. I know that anxiety, but more importantly, Jesus knows that anxiety. And he knew that when he was saying these words. And he offers everyone here freedom and healing if we come to him. So in this passage, Jesus not only calls us to a sexual ethic that values purity, yes, purity, but he also points to the hope, the hope that we can have for a transformed life regardless of our past experiences or our current circumstances. The point that I want you to take from this passage is this. Take radical action to kill sinful sexual desires because Jesus took radical action to kill the power of sin over you. Take radical steps to mortify sexual, sinful sexual desires because Jesus took radical steps to mortify the power of sin over you. We will look at this passage in three steps. First, we'll look at the, the good standard. Second, we'll look at Christ's redemptive call or redemptive agenda. And third, we'll look at our cruciform power. So first, let's look at the good standard. As we saw last week, Jesus structures the Sermon on the Mount using what many scholars call antitheses. He gives part of the Old Testament law by saying, you've heard that it was said, and then he offers an authoritative teaching by starting and saying, but I say unto you, and then he goes on. And it's tempting to think that Jesus is, is overturning the law here, right? But he's not. Jesus explicitly tells us at the beginning of this sermon, in verse 17, that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He tells us that. So what Jesus is doing here is reorienting us to the heart and the purpose of the law. Because the law was always for our good. The law is for our good. So our passage today has two of these antitheses, two of these, you've heard that it was said, but I say unto you this. And both of these have to do with the question of adultery. Adultery is one of those concepts that's easy to kind of put into a box and think that it doesn't really apply to you, right? So even back in Jesus' time, men had all the power. They could initiate divorce. They could drop their wife, go get another one. Uh, 
Um, and as long as there was an air of legality around it, it wasn't considered adultery. And I think that we actually do something similar ourselves, where we think that if I'm not having an affair, I'm not committing adultery. Right? Jesus here is showing us that this legalistic approach to adultery actually misses the heart of the law. Because the heart of the law is pointing us to pursuing selfless service rather than selfish exploitation. Look first at verse 28 with me here. Jesus says there, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. Adultery isn't just about what you do with your body. It's about what you do with your mind. And if you're dwelling on lustful thoughts, you're committing adultery. Now, note exactly what Jesus is pointing to here. He's, he's not saying prevent all thoughts from entering into your mind. In a sense, we can't control what's coming into our mind. He's focused here on holding that gaze, on holding that look. We can't stop what we see, but we can stop what we continue to see. Martin Luther said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop a bird from making a nest in your hair. So, typical Luther. <laughs> and if we continue to look, if we let that bird even start to make a nest in our hair, we entertain those thoughts, what we're actually doing is we're exploiting the other person for our own pleasure. That's what we're doing. Now, look at the next section. Look at verses 31 and 32. Jesus here is referring to a law about giving a certificate of divorce. This law is back in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And Jesus here is taking aim at a culture of easy divorce. Jesus' authoritative teaching here is showing us that divorce actually isn't a way to avoid adultery, even if it's all legal. Because the end of marriage, rather, divorce is the effect of and leads inevitably to adultery. The end of a marriage is always marked by selfishness and exploitation of at least one side by the other. Look at verse 32. The central teaching of this verse here is hard, frankly. We can face that. But it's pretty clear. Divorced people typically shouldn't get remarried. Because to do so is to commit adultery. Now, Jesus does give a caveat. If there's been sexual immorality already, divorce is allowed, and the offended party can get remarried. And Scripture does give us other grounds for divorce as well. Abandonment and abuse. Why is divorce so bad? Look again at verse 32 here with me. Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Isn't that odd phrasing? Why is Jesus singling out the woman here? 
I think this phrasing actually cuts to the heart of why divorce is so lamentable, why it is such a tragedy. Because in a divorce, one, at least one spouse is refusing to take care of the other. The woman here is passive, and that's just because in Jesus' day, the women couldn't initiate divorce. And she didn't have a way to provide for herself outside of the marriage. So if she was going to survive, she had to go get married. As a result, the husband's divorce is actually forcing his wife. The husband's adultery is forcing his wife into sin and into adultery. Instead of the husband caring for his wife, the divorce separates them. He's abdicating his responsibility. The husband is exploiting his wife. And he's exploiting the legal system for personal satisfaction instead of serving his wife. And guys, look, that is wrong. That's wrong because that is abusing the institution of marriage. Marriage is not a contract of convenience that you can just leave whenever it suits you. Because if you do, you will hurt not only yourself, you will hurt your spouse. Marriage is meant to be, it's designed to be a monogamous lifetime bond between one man and one woman for the mutual support and upbuilding of each other. Sexual intimacy both expresses and reinforces that mutual support. In other words, sex isn't about you. Sex is about your spouse. It's about your relationship. And God designed marriage and sex to follow these rules because doing anything else inevitably results in exploitation and abuse. But we are so often tempted to abuse sex and marriage for our own satisfaction, aren't we? We do that simply when we leer. We do that with porn. We do that with sex outside of marriage. We do that through easy divorce. All of these are ways that we use people and then just discard them. That's exploitation. But we also abuse marriage and we abuse sex when we look to it alone to satisfy us. When we expect marriage to meet our every need. When we are looking to our boyfriend or our girlfriend to fix us, to make us better, to make us, to make us perfect. When we look to our spouse, look to our boyfriend to do what only Jesus can do. When we think that unless I have a husband or wife, I am a failure and a waste. These expectations are also ways of abusing marriage and sex because they're oriented not toward the support of the other person, but toward yourself. Friends, do you see why sexual purity and fidelity are actually a really good standard? These rules point us to the heart of what it means to flourish as a human. As a person made in the image of God, he made us not to exploit, but to serve. And we serve each other when we follow these rules and pursue faithfulness and chastity. Some of us are called to be single. Some of us are called to be married. 
But we're all called to serve each other in these ways. This restrained, chaste service of part, is part of what it looks like to flourish as individuals and in our community. Do you feel just how radically countercultural this is? The world would call this standard repression. And Jesus, he knows how hard it is. He knows how easy it is to fall into the vicious cycle of, of lust and adultery and exploitation. So he actually, second, is calling us to a redemptive agenda that allows us to escape the evil of adultery and to pursue faithfulness instead. This agenda is, in a word, mortification. Mortification. To put it more plainly, take radical steps to stop sin. Cut it off. Kill it dead. Look at verses 29 and 30 with me here. An interesting thing about the Sermon on the Mount is where the emphasis lies in each of these little sections. When we read this section on lust, for example, we can sort of summarize it in our heads as Jesus saying something like this. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even lust. And you know, fair enough, he is saying don't lust, that's true, but that's actually missing the emphasis of what Jesus is doing because it's not faithful to what Jesus is saying here in a really crucial way. Jesus doesn't command anything about lust. There are no imperatives in this section. He's just stating a fact. Lust equals adultery. That's just what he's saying there. It's just a fact. But look at verse 29. It's here in verse 29 that we're actually hitting the imperatives. We're actually seeing the commands. And here is where Jesus' emphasis is lying. This is what Jesus wants us to actually do. This is how we follow our king. We follow our king by taking radical steps to cut off sin. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Do you feel the force? Do you feel the commands there? This is what you do. Now, you're probably thinking, cool, Jesus, that's crazy. Some people have actually taken these words extremely literally. Origen, the early church theologian, castrated himself in response to this. So does Jesus want us to do that? Is that what we're being called to do? Should we go that far? The answer is both no and yes. On the one hand, Jesus is using exaggeration to be provocative. He doesn't mean literally go chop off your hand. Because chopping off your hand doesn't change your heart. But Jesus here does mean be radical. Be extreme. Maybe you should go further than you think you should. 
Do whatever it takes to stop sin. And maybe that means getting rid of some things that are as precious and even as seemingly essential as your eye or as your hand. When we're talking about sexual temptation, there's some sort of classic things that we can do to fight it, right? There's software you can put on your phone or on your computer. There are accountability partners. These are good things. But maybe, maybe fighting sin in this area requires taking even more radical steps. Maybe watching that rerun of Game of Thrones or the latest HBO show is only feeding your lust. So maybe taking radical action means cutting off your HBO subscription. Maybe your friends are hosting a movie night and it's a movie that you know is going to cause you to lust. Don't go. Be the proof. Accept the ridicule. Cut off sin. Kill it. Or maybe fighting sin in this area means taking radical steps to actually restructure your entire life. If you're addicted to porn or to sex, maybe you actually need to live with roommates who will keep you accountable. There's this idea floating around, not just here in D.C., but probably most places, at least in the West, that living in your own apartment on your own is more adult. Like you're really mature if you have your own peace. Guys, that's a lie. That's a lie. Let's call it what it is. It is far more mature. It is far more adult to pursue holiness by refusing to create space for temptation in your life. Guys, cut it off. Be extreme. Move back in with your roommates. <laughs> so that's lust. The first section. What about marriage? What about divorce? In verses 31 and 32, Jesus doesn't give an imperative. Does he? That's strange. I think it's actually because the spirit of the imperative in verses 29 and 30 still applies here. You need to pursue radical faithfulness in your marriage. That doesn't just mean cutting off outside temptation. It means being zealous in cultivating your marriage. Is your job suffocating your marriage? Maybe you need to take radical steps to reprioritize in your life. Maybe you need to get another job. Are your kids preventing you and your, and your spouse from spending time together? Maybe you need to bite the bullet and pay for a babysitter every month. And look, <laughs> babysitters are expensive. I am very aware of this. <laughs> Don't let that stop you. Ping the listserv. Ask people to help you. I was talking with some friends yesterday, and, and some of them were setting up a sort of... A, babysitter co-op share thing, where you trade babysitters like once a month. What a great idea! Do that! Work together. Pursue faithfulness in your marriages. Cultivate your marriages. Be extreme. Just don't let your marriage die. Now, you might be wondering, what about those who got divorced 
and then they got remarried, but Jesus says they shouldn't have. What did they do? Maybe this is your parents. Maybe this is you. God's call isn't for you to leave your spouse. God's grace meets you where you are. He wants you to pursue you with faithfulness in your marriage now. So friends, pursue reconciliation where you can. And be radical in your love for your spouse now. Pursue your spouse with everything you have. God in his grace gives you new life. And in that new life, follow him. Let the world call you crazy about it. Follow him in your marriage now. This is Jesus' call for our relationships. Kill sin. Mortify your, your desires. Be extreme. Is Jesus being obsessive about sex here? He's not. He says that this is a really deadly, serious matter. Look again at verses 29 and 30. He says, it's better that you lose one part of your body than that all of you gets thrown into hell. The consequences of sin, including sexual sin, is hell. It's that serious. Guys, this isn't focus on the family talking. This is Jesus. So go kill sin in your life, or it is going to kill you. So Jesus here shows us the first good, shows us first the good standard. And he calls us to escape this vicious cycle by giving us a redemptive agenda. Are you feeling overwhelmed? This is a lot, isn't it? This is really hard. What God is calling us to is really hard. How are we to do this? Where can we find the strength and the power to be able to do this. Jesus here, he's not laying a burden on you that you can't bear. He's not falling into the trap of purity culture, where you're either terrified of breaking the rules or so jaded that you just don't care. And that's because Jesus is calling you to do something that he himself has already done for you Remember what Jesus said in verse 17 of this chapter. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill the whole Bible. And the whole Bible is a love story. It's about a relationship between God and his people. And this relationship is repeatedly described as a marriage. God called the people of Israel to himself. This marriage, it seemed good at first, but after a few years, things started to, you know, feel dry. So Israel started experimenting. Maybe I'll just take a peek at this paganism over here. Maybe I'll just dabble in this divination over here. No big deal, right? But God's not a clueless husband. He knew his people were cheating on him. And so he called them back over and over and over again. He sent prophets, he even sent plagues to try to get their attention. 
he wasn't willing to see his marriage fall apart. Finally, when things seemed so far gone, he did talk about divorcing his people. He read one of those passages. But even then, even then, God refused to abandon his bride. God came in human flesh by sending his son. And in Christ, God pursued his people. He pursued you. He refused to let them go. He refused to let us go. He pursued his people with a radical, extreme love all the way to the cross. And on that cross, his love was so extreme that his love cost him his life. He died. That's how far God was going to go for his marriage. For the second person of the Trinity to come, take on human flesh, pursue his bride, and die for her. So that the bride would be presented to him. Perfect. And there, on that cross, Jesus killed sin and all of its terrible power over his bride. That death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And as a result, God's people died with him to their sins. The Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. And so when he died, our sinful selves died with him. Sin no longer reigns over them. The power of sin has been broken over you. You have new life now in Christ. And because Christ killed sin on the cross, you can be killing sin in your life now too. This is part of what salvation is all about. Yes, God forgives you in Christ. You have a new start in Christ. Amen. But Christ also empowers you to then go and kill sin in your life. That means you're not trapped in temptation. Your marriage isn't destined to end in divorce. You can take radical action precisely because Christ took radical action for you. For you. Christ loved you all the way to the cross so you can pursue holiness and, yes, even purity in your life. Friends, I know all this talk of purity can feel like renunciation. It can feel like giving up a part of you just so desperately once. But by saying no to sexual sin, you are enabling yourself, allowing yourself to say a deeper yes to God. God doesn't call you to be alone. He calls you to himself. Everyone, whether single or whether you're married, has access to what marriage ultimately points to. The union of God and his people. 
In heaven, there will be one marriage. And it's between Jesus and his church. We all have access to that marriage. It's that marriage that we'll be living in for our entire life in heaven, for eternity in heaven. And that marriage is so much better than the fleeting satisfaction that you can find here on this earth. Jesus took radical steps to kill the power of sin over you because he loves you. So let's take radical action to kill the power of sin in our lives. Amen.